I'm delighted, as always, and honoured to be asked to talk. But I have to admit that thinking what I was going to say in my opening 25 minutes has caused me more headaches than many a talk I've given for many a year. I have the impression, Sam, in contrast to A-levels and GCSEs, the exam questions that you set us, year by year, get harder and harder. And by us, I mean the speakers, the audience, and yourself. And this, of course, is a good sign. I feel as if successive meetings have taken medicine, or at least the way we think about it, further and further out of the box. But it's also very daunting. You're asking us to think harder, more imaginatively, than it is comfortable to do so. And then there's the problem of the topic you've asked Rupert and myself to talk about, knowledge. This is a huge, not to say profound topic, and it's very difficult to avoid saying things that are banal on the one hand or opaque on the other. To steer between the scylla of the bleeding obvious and the charybdis of the obscure. And I shall probably pull off the extraordinary feat of being holed by the rock and dragged down into the whirlpool, probably simultaneously. But even if I don't suffer this fate, I know that what I shall have to say will be little more than remarks, though I will try to create the illusion of something connected. Of course, we're talking about knowledge because medicine is, amongst other things, a body of knowledge. We go to doctors because they know things we don't know and we need to know. And doctors refer to specialists because they know things other doctors don't know. That, at least, is the principle behind it all. But, as Sam says, what is knowledge? Now, according to the standard philosophical definition, knowledge is true, justified belief. But in a fam famous short paper published in 1963... Edmund Gettier showed that this seemingly incontestable, even banal definition can lead to all sorts of paradoxes. And you'd be glad to know that I won't discuss these paradoxes because they've spawned a huge and baffling philosophical literature. And I don't think they're entirely relevant to our concerns today. But the important point is that for something to count as knowledge, it should be true, of course. And for you to really know something, you should be able to give grounds for the claim that you know it. You should be able to justify your believing what you claim to know. A lucky hit is not good enough. If challenged, you should be able to give the evidence for what you claim to be the case and even state how you came about that evidence. So what we know is a subset of what we believe. Knowledge is rather special because we have many, many beliefs that are wrong. Medicine has been awash with them from the beginning, the beliefs of patients, of society and, above all, the beliefs of physicians. Unlike untrue beliefs, knowledge is about something out there. Untruths untrue beliefs, beliefs are about something in here, in our individual or collective consciousness. Beliefs are merely psychological phenomena that begin and aware end in human awareness. Whether there is something, it would appear, independent of our psyches that corresponds to knowledge. You'll be astonished to know that that is a highly contestable statement, but I believe it. We contrast knowledge with beliefs that are mere opinion. And yet opinion isn't merely the enemy of knowledge. Opinion will prompt us to seek out experiences that may or may not confirm it. The reason we humans have such knowledge is that unlike all the other animals, we form explicit opinions. Man is the opinionated animal. Forming opinions is systematized in science. In this context, we call opinions hypotheses. And more importantly, we devise ways of acquiring the experiences, making the observations, making the measurements that may confirm or refute those hypotheses. In order to want to test our hypotheses, we have to be aware of their tentative nature. Otherwise, we'll already regard them as knowledge and requiring no further support. We have the unique, unique capacity, we human animals, to question what we believe. And we deliberately set out to confound ourselves. That's what, one of the many things that makes us unique. 
Now, although our beliefs arise out of experience and are tested against the tribunal of experience, knowledge goes beyond experience. That's why we can be so spectacularly mistaken in small things and in large things. This propensity to be mistaken is most evident when our beliefs take the form of general statements, most evidently in science, and particularly in medical science. We are professors of data-lean generalizations. We are prone, indeed even obliged, to form beliefs of a very high order and a very wide range. But these beliefs are vulnerable. To take a well-worn example from the philosopher Karl Popper, from our experience of a very large number of swans that all happen to be white, we may conclude that all swans are white, but our conclusion exceeds the data that underpins it. We simply haven't checked all the places where swans are or may be found. And these places, surprise, surprise, include Australia, where some swans are black. So while knowledge is a kind of resting point, it is a sign of intellectual health that we can regard it always as temporary. And one of the reasons why humans are so knowledgeable is that they're always questioning what they think they know. As the philosopher William Van Orman Quine said, we are the species that invented doubt. Science is a body of knowledge, yes, but it's also a set of techniques for using and for systematizing doubt. It is act active uncertainty, and it's this enables to reach from the known into the unknown. And of course, the unknown made known has the habit of undermining what we thought was known. So there is a tension within science that's particularly evident in the science that preoccupies us today, medical science. A tension between the body of knowledge and the critical sense that puts it into question. And this is particularly admirable because the body of knowledge within science appears especially robust because it, and, and, and because the questioning process to which we subject it is particularly ingenious. But scientific knowledge is robust not only because it's been repeatedly and extensively exposed to the tribunal of carefully designed experience, testing, but also because any given piece of knowledge is part of a dense network of facts and theories. For example, information about the value of an antibiotic in a particular cause of fever is part of a corpus of facts, concepts and theories relating to the nature of infectious illness, to the response of the body to microorganisms and the pharmacology of antibiotics. Any given fact is a brick in a very big wall. Sometimes the network of theories can get in the way of progress, preventing us from seeing what is in front of our eyes or seeing the significance of an observation that doesn't fit into our existing way of seeing things. For example, the well-worked-out theory of peptic ulcer disease, which was brilliantly consistent and supported by countless studies, made it difficult to think that the incidental observation of microorganisms in the stomach wall of sufferers could be of any relevance. Indeed, if I'd said when I was taking my finals in 1970 that peptic ulcer disease was in part due to an infectious agent, I would have been invited to return a year later for a reset. <laughs> now, thanks to the persistence of Barry Marsh and Robert Warren, decades of medical doctrine that peptic ulcers were caused by acid, stress, spicy food, and so on and so forth exclusively, the, this doctrine was reversed, as a result of which new and more effective ways of treating peptic ulcers could be devised. Now, this is a small example excuse me, of what has been called a paradigm shift, something that occurs when a particular theoretical framework breaks down under the pressure of undeniable facts that it can't accommodate. And it's a sign of healthy science that it undergoes such a shift from time to time. But 
This mustn't be taken to support the once-fashionable postmodern claim that there is, after all, no such thing as knowledge, or that the difference between justified true belief and any old belief is an illusion. For a start, even after the most seismic theoretical revolutions, many things remain unchanged. Many facts remain in place. For example, Marshall and Warren didn't retrospectively disprove that various medical and surgical strategies hitherto used for controlling peptic ulcer were no good, nor did they prove that acid had nothing to do with inflammatory damage to the stomach wall. And what's more, they drew on other conventional ideas, namely those relating to microbiology, to the science of infectious disease, in developing their new and therapeutically more effective approaches to peptic ulcer. They were not, for example, appealing to, say, devil possession for indigestion or postulating a new force in nature as a cause of tummy upsets. Even so, some people have exaggerated the significance of revolutions in science to suggest that not even scientific knowledge is truly objective, that scientists tell stories like anyone else, with the approaches of the shaman and the GP being of equal validity. And even, they claim, there are no such things as facts, only opinions that appeal to different cultures or different interpretive communities. These exaggerations, exaggerations of the instability of what counts as knowledge in the sciences, are not merely insincere, but of course self-contradictory in a way that we might wish to explore, or better still, to ignore. <laughs> Notwithstanding the occasional paradigm shift, the advance of knowledge take place within stable paradigms. As we move from basic biomedical science to therapeutic possibilities, as therapeutic possibilities are exposed to a series of tests ranging from proof in principle in animals to studies in healthy volunteers to small group studies to adequately powered control trials and to systematic reviews and meta-analysis of all the available information. At every stage in this process, opinion, expectation, what seems like robust generalizable knowledge is exposed to doubt. And this doubt, this active uncertainty is maintained at many levels. But actually doubting and maintaining active uncertainty is hard work because it goes against the grain. We may be the species that discovered doubt, but it's hard to sustain doubt when our cherished ideas, ideas that work wonderfully in theory, and when our patients' hopes, not to speak of the hopes of commercial partners, are at stake. Even so, we mustn't take for granted the miracle of the relentless doubt to which we expose what we believe or is about to become knowledge. It is a miracle. It's an existential miracle that we have cultivated doubt in this way and have made any progress towards truly evidence-based medicine. It's an extraordinary, if incomplete, triumph over self-deception, over the desire to hold fast to that which seems to be solid and irrefutable. Now, my superficial, or at least rather fast-moving comments about knowledge have treated it as something in isolation. Because, but of course, in medicine as elsewhere, we see knowledge in action, directing, or supposedly directing, the way we respond to disease, whether we're irrespective of whether we're patients, supporters of patients, or healthcare professionals. And knowledge undergoes a number of mediations as it moves from the place where it is uncovered and tested to the places where it's synthesized into neat packets, as in reviews and textbooks, into the heads of professionals where it is considerably less well organized and to the even messier place where it is incorporated into and guides busy, interrupted practice. Practice influenced by personal experience, either directly or indirectly through that of others. And it's here where opinion may try to make a comeback and where robust, generalized, objective findings are sometimes bypassed. This is not entirely a bad thing, of course. 
Most obviously because if individual practitioners didn't modify, didn't critique the body of knowledge, medicine itself would not advance. But there's another reason, in addition to the element of chaos that enters into the aspect of everyday life. It is the, that awkward customer, the patient, who is always a patient and never the patient. Our knowledge, by virtue of its generality, that makes it applicable to a series of patients, will inevitably filter out features that make up the inescapable singularity of the individual patient. The precise way illness presents, the subjective experience of the illness, what different aspects of it mean, will vary, of course, from person to person. People also have bodies and lifestyles that mean that therapies will have a different Im impact. Every diagnosis is to some extent a guess. Every prescription, every treatment is a therapeutic trial. Especially that part of the treatment that consists in explaining to the patient what is going wrong. And this will tend to put general knowledge in its place, an honoured place, but still it isn't the whole story. But it's not important not to overestimate the extent to which we can, as it were, put general knowledge in its place. And I want to illustrate this by means of a very specific example. That organ of truth, perspective and proportion, the Daily Mail, has recently <laughs> been whipping up hysteria about the Liverpool Care Pathway. This was introduced as a way of trying to ensure people had a good death, that is, comfortable and dignified, so far as might be possible, and people were spared the mindless continuation of treatment that was invasive, but provided no symptom relief and was pointless, where there was no possibility or even desire to prolong life. Now, according to the Daily Mail, this is now being used to kill approximately 130,000 elderly patients a year, mainly in order to clear beds or to secure financial rewards for hospital trusts. In fact, it's nothing of the sort. But there is a bit of evidence that it's perhaps being used rather mechanistically, and in some cases has seen to overlook those aspects of good care that are not automated by the pathway. And this illustrates a wider truth about the application of medical knowledge, even the best knowledge of best, best medical practice, that this knowledge always has to be tailored to the individual circumstance of an individual person. Very banal, but as someone said, if you're the kind of doctor who relies on algorithms to manage your patients, you should refer your patients to someone who doesn't rely on algorithms. <laughs> because you're going to miss something which tells you you're barking up the wrong algorithm. <laughs> now, having made that supremely banal point, it's still difficult to define those circumstances in which it is, and those in which it is not, appropriate to deviate from the printed directions. Which brings me to the issue of evidence-based medicine. To me, the supreme manifestation of medical knowledge. This has been the most impressive attempt to bring the maximum of robust knowledge to bear on actual medical decision-making. Now, it's not to say that medical practice before the 1980s, when evidence-based medicine learned to speak its name, was evidence-free, but it's only in recent decades that we felt it a moral obligation to make sure our practice is informed by all available knowledge. And this has many aspects to it, the most striking being, first, the endeavour, sometimes thwarted by Big Pharma and others with vested interests, did I mention Tamiflu, the first, the endeavour to make sure that all the knowledge that is out there is available, that we know that we know what it is that is known. Hence the emphasis on looking beyond the usual published source of information. And secondly, synthesizing that knowledge using statistical and other techniques in such a way as to maximize the chances of arriving at the most reliable conclusions. It is now a bit more difficult to get away with relying on ignorance-based and self-appointed authority-based intuitions to guide your decision-making. But this has had other indirect benefits on the sociology of medicine. 
we're all much more willing to admit our ignorance than perhaps we were, more prepared to remove the mask of omniscience and to look things up, even in front of patients, or to state that the evidence is not conclusive. And this is in part, to use the well-worn metaphor, a consequence of the widening circle of knowledge having a greater circumference touching ignorance. The more we know, the more we know we don't know. Our confidence questions itself with confidence intervals. And this is a development of the humility that began when doctors first enrolled patients in other people's clinical trials rather than simply relying on the authority of their own experience. And one of the most remarkable recent expressions of the distribution of authority has been the increasing tendency to see systematic reviews and meta-analysis as tasks to be led by non-experts in the particular fields in question. We are perhaps a long way from the situation where the doctor was one who invariably had the knowledge and the patient merely had beliefs, including unquestioning belief in the doctor. In addition, the information that professionals draw upon is also available to everyone else, perhaps through the internet and so on. But we always have to remember that knowledge without perspective may often be a high form of ignorance. Needless to say, not everyone has been uniformly happy with the rise and rise of evidence-based medicine, of guidelines that ensure a minimal standard of good practice, and of other knowledge-based constraints on clinical freedom. And this is not simply due to an inability to come to terms with the loss of unchallenged authority, that this may sometimes contribute to dissatisfaction. Now it relates again to the singularity of patients. What might be right for the great majority may be wrong for those stubborn singularities that each of us will turn out to be when we fall ill. But that, of course, is not an argument against evidence-based medicine. What, after all, are the alternatives? Ignorance-based medicine? Opinion-based medicine? Personal experience-based medicine? You know, a physician makes the same mistake a thousand times and expects you to defer to her great experience. Or, worse still, professor-based medicine? <laughs> no. We simply have to acknowledge that evidence-based medicine is a necessary condition of good care, but not a sufficient condition. Professionals should know their guidelines and usually stick to them, but also know when to deviate from them and have the courage to do so, if this is justified. Now, I'm pretty sure that nothing I've said so far is particularly difficult, and certainly not original. Behind it is the general idea that true knowledge is inseparable from the sense of uncertainty, and advances in knowledge will come from cultivating uncertainty and being prepared to relinquish cherished ideas. I probably didn't need to say that, and I'm conscious I'm already well rocked, well wrecked on the rock of the bleeding obvious, but let me, let me spend my final few minutes by trying to take you down with me in the whirlpool of the obscure. <laughs> Our theme is knowledge, and knowledge, as Karl Popper said, is the most mysterious thing in the universe. Just how mysterious, it would take me a very long time to unpack. I did write a 300-page book on it, which is pretty hard going, even for the person who wrote it. <laughs> but I want, to pick up, I want to pick up on something that I said at the beginning that knowledge exceeds the experience on which it is based. While it is exposed to the tribunal of experience, it just doesn't amount to piled-up experience or compressed sense awareness. It is a mode of consciousness that is unique to human beings. We are the species who deal in facts and propositions. In what I've called elsewhere, thatter. That X is the case. My feeling of warmth, like the feeling of warmth of any organism, is private to me, and it belongs to me as an organism. My knowledge that it is warm because the sun is shining is something that doesn't belong to me alone. It can be shared. And this is in part, but not entirely, due to our having language, which is entirely different from animal signaling systems. Our animals may, other animals may, may feel warm, but we alone assert that it is warm. 
And this mode of awareness lies at the very origin of our search for an understanding that relates our experiences to general causes. So all knowledge belongs not to Homo sapiens, the organism, but to the community of minds and to the human world woven out of a trillion cognitive, cognitive handshakes over hundreds of thousands of years. And this makes medical knowledge particularly remarkable for two reasons. First of all, the object of such knowledge is the human body itself, the launch pad from which knowledge itself began. It is knowledge turned back on its own origins. Secondly, the kind of knowledge that has made medicine powerful, biomedical science, is largely based on the idea that human beings are organisms and illnesses are dysfunctioning of organisms. There's therefore a great tension at the heart of medicine. The fact of medical knowledge demonstrates that we are far from being organisms, while the medical gaze that has been so powerful, the scientific medical gaze, has been so powerful because it sees us as analogous to other forms of organic life. And this tension can be seen to be manifest in the conflict between the subjective experience of illness and the objective account of illness, as reflected in the facts that we have to take note of when we're trying to make sense of what is going on in such a way as to manage the illness in accordance with best evidence-based medicine. Even when we deliver excellent care, there may be a sense that there is a gulf between the patient and her medical attendants, a problem that goes deeper than the problem of two languages, which may leave the patient feeling somewhat alienated even from the most thoughtful and empathetic medical care. She may even feel alienated by or from her illness. Who, after all, could be a urea of 35, or indeed be a urea of 3.5? Who could be a left ventricular ejection fraction of 15% or synchronized discharges in the parietal cortex? Medical knowledge extends our capacity to deal with the illnesses that invade us from the darkness of our own bodies. It does so by acknowledging and engaging with the impersonal or pre-personal nature of this organism upon which we pitch our personal lives. This helps, at least for the duration of our lives, to make it less inhuman. Having arrived simultaneously on the rock of the obvious and the whirlpool of the obscure, I will come to a close. Suffice it to say that I very much look forward to seeing medicine helped a little bit further out of its box in the next day or two, and to be somewhat unboxed myself. Advances in knowledge will come from challenging what we know. Its amenability to be challenged is what differentiates it from dogma. And we need to think perhaps a little more deeply on the nature of knowledge itself, because it participates in the mystery of consciousness. And as for consciousness, I am with the psychologist and philosopher Jerry Fodor, who said, we can't as things stand now so much as to imagine the solution to the problem of consciousness. The revisions of our concepts and theories that imagining a solution will eventually require are likely to be very deep and very unsettling. There's hardly anything we may not have to cut loose from before the problem is through with us. And this is true of the problem of knowledge. But we must not give up on our existing knowledge and concepts too lightly under the pretense of being postmodern, because they have served us well, and we must be sure that the new paradigm or paradigms is or are really more powerful than the old. Thank you.